Would you bow with me and let's pray. God, there's some things that your word talks about that are just to the absolute center, the foundation of your will for us. And uh, this idea of commitment and how it relates to love is one of those things. And so, Father, I pray that uh, as I share just for a few minutes here with these folks some words from your word, the Bible, I pray that there would be clarity. I pray that they might sense the passion and the imminence or the, the importance of these things. I pray, Lord, more than anything, that uh, they might get it, that uh, this group of people who are at all different places in their spiritual walk might get uh, the idea of love in the form of commitment, and that, Lord, by getting it, you might change and transform our lives and use us in ways to make this world uh, a place that would be drawn more to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We rally around it now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the very, very last message of a series on relationships. On relationships. Thought it'd be a good idea to talk about relationships at Christmas time because all of us have very heightened relational activity at a time like this. And yet, as we've noted, relationships are really difficult. So we've had a theme verse in this series here. It's out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24. Look up here on the screen and it simply says this. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Focus on that little part. Let us consider. It simply means let us think more deeply than usual. Let's give some thought to this stuff. And what are we giving thought to? How we can have the kind of relationships that God would have for us this side of heaven. So if you've been with us, you've noticed that we've taken a look at a few different components of what we're calling a healthy relationship. There's five of them. We've taken a look at intentionality. We've taken a look at how to listen to one another, how to speak truth and grace to one another. And then last week, how to even have workable conflict with another person, owning your own stuff and trying to work through that tunnel of chaos. And today, as I mentioned before we prayed, we come to the final component of a healthy relationship. And I got some good news for you. We're at the summit right now. I mean, this is the apex of what it means to have a healthy and godly relationship. In fact, quite frankly, folks, this trait we're going to look at today is what pulls everything else together. So much so that if you don't have this in increasing measure, because none of us ever finally arrived to heaven, but if you don't have this in increasing measure, then almost all the other things you're going to do aren't going to help you all that much. Because the thing that we need to look at today is what pulls it all together. It's the core, the foundation of what God wants for our relationships. So enough said, here's your main point. Look up here on the screen. And that is that love in the form of commitment, is the foundation of all healthy relationships. It's true. Let me repeat that. Love, in the form of commitment, and that's our key word today, commitment, is the foundation of all healthy relationships. I've been your pastor here now for just over two years. And over the last couple of years, I have shared with you one of my pet peeves about today's American culture. And that is simply how our culture today imbues us around every corner with a very wrong and deceiving definition of love. If you've heard me talk about this before, you know that that it bothers me that our culture today defines love as either a bunch of kind thoughts that you might have toward another person, or even worse, a string of fanciful emotions that you feel when you think of another person. We have kind of relegated love to either a bunch of benevolent thoughts or a bunch of kind feelings. 
And so think about it. If you go out today after our service and turn on the radio, you're going to hear love songs that sing and pine about love, and almost all of them are going to be of a feeling nature. It's going to talk about how you fell into love and fell out of love. Love is defined by our our, our modern-day culture so much in terms of feelings. If you go home this afternoon and read a romance novel, uh, not that I read romance novels, but if you were to go home and read romance novels, uh, I am told that you are going to read uh, about these relationships in which people kind of ebb and flow and have this feeling and that feeling, and it's all about kind of being nudged this way and that way and falling in and falling out of love. It will describe them more as a feeling thing, or at best a bunch of thoughts that you have toward each other. If you read the latest nonfiction book on love or popular magazines on relationships, you're going to read about sparking the feelings of love by doing this and avoiding that. Love by our culture today is at best kind thoughts and at, and at worst just a bunch of feelings that you have for another person. And don't get me wrong, folks. Surely it is true that love many times invokes adrenaline-producing feelings. I mean, it's one of the great benefits of love. Flowing out of love, you feel great about and toward another person. And certainly love carries with it kind and benevolent thoughts that we have towards another person. In fact, that fuels love. But listen, at its essence, in its core, this is not what love is about. Not at all. Love, in its essence, at its God-designed center, is a commitment that one makes. It's a choice to act in a way that is truthful and graceful and considers the other person's well-being before your own. Don't miss this. Love is a sacrificial act. It's a a commitment that we make to those around us to treat them in such a way that considers their best interests in mind. And sometimes it's tender, but sometimes it's tough. But one thing is constant. It's a commitment that we make to treat them as they deserve and need to be treated for their best in mind. Author William Manchester, who returned to the island of Okinawa 35 years after receiving a wound there in World War II that earned him a purple heart, says this in his book, Goodbye Darkness. He says, and then, in one of those great thundering jolts in which a man's real motives are revealed to him in an electrifying vision, I understand at last why I jumped hospital that thirty-five that day 35 years ago and in violation of orders returned to the front and almost certain death. Look up here on the screen. He says, it was an act of love. Those men on the line were my family. They were my home. They had never let me down, and I couldn't do it to them. I had to be with them rather than let them die and me live with the knowledge that I might have saved them. He says, men, I now knew, do not fight for flag or country, for the Marine Corps or glory or any other abstraction. They fight for one another. Now let that sink in a moment, folks. They fight for one another. That's love. People who fight together in war have come nudged very close to the core definition of love. They know what it means to act and give their life for the betterment of another person to protect and even provide for another person. And yeah, there might be benevolent feelings and there might be kind thoughts, but those aren't the center. Those aren't the core. It's love in the form of action and sacrifice and commitment. And so, folks, just dream with me. When this love is given and received like this, look out. Because now, not only are you starting to relate in the kind of way that God intended, but in a way that He also designed to give us the most security, the most longevity, and the most satisfaction out of the relationships that He has blessed us with. 
You know, the Bible actually has a word for this kind of love. It's a word that many, many of you have heard if you've been around the church block more than once. What's the word for love that the Bible uses here? Agape. Agape. What you might not have known is that this word is used like all the time in the New Testament. In fact, it appears over 250 times in the New Testament alone. Agape, the word for love. And it literally means, I like C.S. Lewis's definition the best, unconditional love. It's love that has no strings attached, that stays with another through thick and thin, that has their best interest in mind, not just one's own. It has commitment to another person's welfare above your own welfare. In fact, check this out. This agape love is the love that God has for us. It's the love that sent Christ, which is what we're celebrating at Christmas. It's the love that secured our salvation, that the Bible now says gives us eternal security in our relationship with Him when we've come to Him through Jesus Christ. The fact that He's never, ever going to let us go. Don't miss this. It's agape love, God's love for us, that is the foundation, the seed of our entire relationship with Him and that gives us security with Him. That He's constantly with us and will never let us go. And hence, when it is the same agape type love that we then show toward those around us, To our spouse, our kids, our grandkids, our friends, our church members, it has the power to give relational security with us and them this side of heaven. So don't miss this. The same love that God has shown for us that gives us eternal security, I'll explain that more in a second here, is the same kind of love that when then shown horizontally with each other can give relational security. The kind of security that let others know you're okay with me. And that my love for you is not dependent upon your performance because it's rooted in me for you. And it's a commitment, not a feeling that's going to go up and down or a thought that might change tomorrow. I need all of you to see this link between God's agape love for us and the eternal security that it brings and the relational security that this kind of love is designed to have for each of us as we show it toward each other. And so let me explain to you how this works. First, you need to understand that God's love for you in Jesus gives you what Bible experts coin eternal security. The reality that once God has showered His love on you in Christ, that when you came to faith in Him then and accepted that love, He now has a commitment to you that the Bible says will never wane and never die. He is going to see you through to the end. This truth is so critical to our church here. It's actually written into our statement of faith. It's called the assurance of the believer. And so look at how Jesus would put it. Look at John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. I don't think he could be more clear. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them, here it is, eternal life and they will never perish. Now get this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and he says it again, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So put the link together. Eternal life, nothing is going to snatch that away. Nothing. Uh, Not the evil one, not the lure of this world, not your own sin that you're probably going to still struggle with. Get this, not even yourself can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. He's saying nothing is going to snatch them away from me. Jesus believed this so strongly that at another point in Scripture, he actually gives a, a, a pick up the same analogy. He says, if I have a hundred sheep and one of them wanders, I'm going to cut my losses and pour into the 99. 
No, he doesn't say that. He says, if one wanders, I'm going to go off into the mountains, into the hills, and get that one, because that one is so valuable to me. You're secure. His love for you has you forever in his flock. Paul the Apostle, speaking more theologically, said it this way years later in Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. Look up here on the screen. He said, in him, meaning Christ, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Focus on that. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So at the moment you believed in Christ, the Bible says you were sealed, guaranteed your place in eternity with him until you finally get there. And then as if this were not enough, look at Hebrews 13, 5. Again, this stuff's all over the New Testament. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He'll never leave you. And he'll never forsake you. God is that committed to you in his love for you. Please see that. And once you're his, the Bible says, there is no turning back in his secure love for you. It's the believer's ultimate and wonderful assurance. Now, with this in mind, folks, because you see a lot of people just stop right here and they say, oh, in this great God loves me and I'm eternally secure. doesn't stop here. With this in mind, I-, I want you now to look at what the Bible says using this exact same word for love, agape, on how we are now to treat one another. You ready for this? Look at John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Again, Jesus is speaking. He says, this is my commandment, that you love agape one another, as I have loved agape you. Greater love has no one this than someone laid down his life for his friends. So we are to love one another just as God has loved us. Don't miss that. The same action-oriented, commitment-laden love that God has for you and me that has given us eternal security. He now says, transfer that love to each other and watch the spiritual sparks fly. Have that kind of commitment toward each other so that nothing, not even death, is going to stand in the way of your love for another because nothing, not even death, has stood in the way, God's way of loving us. He says, and you will have relational security with each other. You will love them in such a way that the world will not know what got into you and want to know how they can have this love as well. John believes so strongly in this that he wrote an entire letter on this. It's a letter of 1 John, and look at how he sums it up in chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. He says, Beloved, let us love, again, agape, one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anybody who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is the clearest link you're ever going to find to eternal security and relational security, spelled out clearly in the Scriptures, that God loves us and gives us security with Him, And so we're not to love one another and provide relational security for them this side of heaven. Folks, don't ever be undersold on this issue. The deepest need of the human heart is to be loved. It really is. The deepest longing of the human heart is that somebody would love me. And by the way, do you know what the deepest fear of the human heart is? Is if somebody ever really gets to know you, they're not going to love you. A lot of times people think that the deepest fear of the human heart is like fear of heights or fear of public speaking or something goofy like that. It's not true. 
The deepest fear of the human heart is if somebody really knew who you were, if they really understood what you think and what you do, they wouldn't stay with you. They wouldn't love you. And again, this is why it's so important that we transcend the idea that love is just a bunch of kind thoughts or, or heightened feelings. Because love is a commitment to your welfare, to your well-being and best interest. So much so as we're starting to see that there's staying power in love. So let me put it to you candidly. When you let somebody down, if they love you, they forgive you. When you blow it again, they're patient with you. When you deceive yourself, they are truth-telling with you. All of this is love. It is wrapped up in a radical commitment to you that does nothing but give you a deep sense of security with them. That's agape love. It flows from God's eternal security with Him, and it gives us relational security with each other, knowing that there's at least a few others in this world around you that are going to love you, tough and tender, committed to your welfare, no matter what. Maybe now you can see why I feel so strongly about this. Because here's the point. If I was sitting down with the average Christ follower today at Starbucks, where I get most of my coffee, and I was asking that person, after explaining agape love in this way, do you have anybody in your life that really loves you like that? That if they knew everything, if they knew all those thoughts and those actions, those secret things that you just don't dare tell anybody, if they knew all that, do you have confidence that they'd still be with you and stay with you? Or would there be such repercussions that love would fall by the wayside? I wouldn't be shocked if the majority of followers of Jesus today would say, Jamie, I don't have that kind of love around me. I really don't have anybody that would love me like that. I think God does, and that's why I'm a Christian. And that's why He knows everything, because He's sovereign. And that's why even in my more gutsy moments, I tell Him in confession. But I dare say, I don't think I have anybody around me like that. And folks, that's so incredibly sad that not every follower of Jesus wouldn't both have that love and give that love because that's what makes the church. And without that kind of love, without us truly rising up and loving people with such a commitment, the same commitment that God has to us, then we don't become the beautiful body of Christ, the, the beautiful bride of Christ that He wants us to be. In a sense, without that love, and we're just playing games, and I have failed as your pastor And we've all failed together as a church. In Colossians, it says that my goal someday and the goal of our elders is that we are to present every person complete in Christ. Have you ever thought what that means? What does it mean when it says that we need to present each other complete in Christ? You can scour the Scriptures and the Word that you're going to come back to over and over and over again like a scratch CD is this word love. But not love as our world defines it. Love in the form of a commitment. And so I simply got to ask you, do you long for this kind of love? Do you? Do you long to be shown this and have the kind of relationships in which you can go the distance? It begins by longing for it and then showing it. Because it's lost in our church today. We are so low on commitment in general that we forgot even what love is. I read a funny cartoon a few years back in Leadership Magazine that was just talking about how the church today is so changed when it comes to its understanding of commitment that it's actually kind of comical. Look up here on the screen. It showed a picture of a small little church with a huge sign out in front of it. And I read it. It's called the Light Church. 
24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. For those of you who don't laugh, I've got to explain the millennium to you someday, but that's funny. Everything you've wanted in a church and less. And though that's funny, that's also pathetic, isn't it? Give me a head nod. And what makes it even more pathetic is that some of us, without trying to be too judgmental, know churches like this. We've been to churches. I read an article just a few years back in USA Today that was talking about a church down in Florida. I think everybody in Florida is off base. Anyways, down in Florida. No, I'm just kidding. Down in Florida, in which they had out on the sign, it just said, in and out, 45 minutes, 20 minute sermons. And it was just talking about how wonderful it is that church is more like McDonald's. I think it was like called McChurch or something like this. And I almost wept. I thought, that is just so pathetic. We've just caved into culture on that one. Amen? We're just becoming like the world. This kind of shy on commitment. So we say, hey, let's follow suit. Maybe we'll gather more people. But Jesus never did that. Jesus said, no, here's the values of the kingdom. Here's the values of God, your heavenly Father. And He wants your life to revolve around that and revolve around Him. And one of the highest values He has for you, now check this out, are your relationships. They matter more to Him than anything else in your life. More than your job, more than your financial portfolio, more than your hobbies, your interests, even more than your own personal dreams and desires. He values your relationships. And within the rubric of your relationships, He values love in the form of commitment. This is His best for you. And He's shown it to you in Christ. And now He says, now show it to those around you. Scream it to them. And watch what happens in your relationships. And so once we get this, folks, once we understand God's best for us here, the only question becomes then what is it that we're committed to in the lives of those around us, right? Follow logic there. If love is commitment, and we're about commitment to each other, then what is it specifically that we're committing to? That's the $10 question. And though there's myriads of things that the Bible says that we need to be committed to in and for each other, let me just share with you three of them in kind of a general way, and then we'll be done. Three things that the Bible says that we commit to with each other that gives some teeth and grit to agape love. Here's the first one, and that is that you make a commitment to help others know God and to show agape love as well. You help others to know God and love others. And this might sound so general, but I'm telling you, this has teeth and it's all over the New Testament. Look at how Paul would say it in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love, again agape, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I like how it says it. This is the New International Version. I like this translation in this uh, particular passage. It says that your love assuming love for God and love for others, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In short, that you may grow in knowing and experiencing who God is in your life, His truth, His grace, and, and as well grow in your love expression to those around you. This was Paul's prayer all the time for the people that he rubbed shoulders with, and it was a commitment that he had. 
when he rubs shoulders with people. And that's what love is. It's that kind of commitment that we make. You've probably never heard the name Karen Watson, but she is one of over 1,000 Americans who have been killed in Iraq since the war started. And arriving there in June of 2003, she was one of five other relief workers from the famous Southern Baptist International Mission Board that went there to help rebuild Iraq. And having experience in relief efforts, efforts, she was in Mosul in March of 2004, scouting out some sites for a water purification project when she and her companions were gunned down by an unidentified group of attackers who blanketed their vehicle with dozens of rounds from their AK-47s. Nobody survived. They were all killed instantly. Before she left, however, she wrote a letter to her two pastors only to be opened in the event that she died. And so when Karen was killed, her two pastors opened the letters, and here's what it said. Look up here on the screen. It said, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I am still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. And then she says this. She says, in regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yet, yes, simply just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. And then writing a little poem, she says, The missionary heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. She says, I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There's no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you too and my church family. In His care, Salam, Karen. Folks, I've literally wept in private as I have read this letter over the years. Because you see, this woman knew what it meant to love other people and to love God and to love people with a commitment to know God and to pour into other people. She says there's no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you too in my church family. And Karen clearly demonstrated this in in her life. At the beginning of this series, I asked you to do something. I asked you to maybe notch away in your mind or your heart one or two people that you would think of during this series that you might want to go deeper with. It might be a spouse. It might be a wayward kid. It might be a co-worker, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, just somebody in your sphere of influence. It might be somebody here at church. But who was that person for you? Think of them right now if you did that. Or maybe think of somebody in this moment and realize that the first commitment that love makes to them is a commitment to help them know God and to love others first things first. And it doesn't take a missionary to do this. It simply takes somebody who, with commitment and a love for others, imparts things like intentionality, listening, speaking, conflict resolution, and most of all, an undying commitment to them no matter what. Do this, and you will watch the sparks fly on a spiritual and relational level. Second commitment that love makes to others is a commitment to help them become all that God desires them to be. It's a commitment to help them become what God desires them to be. 
And some of you are saying, wasn't that just a commitment to know God and love others? Well, yeah, but that's pretty general. You see, loving others also involves a commitment to you helping them discover their spiritual gifts, what they're really good at, how they were born with a natural talent base that helps them be good at a few things. It even helps them discover uh, the things that they might not be all that good at, just weed those things out. It helps them discover the things that naturally they're going to have to watch out for, whether it be a predisposition to sort of some type of addiction or an anger base that they struggle with. I mean, it's just helping them become all they can be in Christ. Uh, Paul the Apostle had this commitment to every one of the people he rubbed shoulders with. Look at how he says it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I love that word picture there. Just as a baby is formed within the womb of a mother and toward the end of this forming, labor pains begin, Paul is saying that he is committed in love toward this band of Christ followers so strongly that he's feeling labor pains until they are formed, until they can become all that God wants them to be. And so whether it's a commitment to one's giftedness or to one's struggles or to one's temperament, it's just committed to them to help them become all that God desires them to be. That's love. It's those of us looking out for each other, not tiring until Christ is formed in us, until God's will is rooting itself out in each other's lives. Uh, Philip Yancey, uh, a few years back, wrote a book called Rumors of Another World. And in this book, he tells a story of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was visiting the University of Southern Mississippi. And during a tour of the campus, Jackson noticed a towering male student, about six foot eight inches tall, who was holding hands with a fellow co-ed who was a little person, barely three feet tall. And with his curiosity piqued, Jackson stopped to watch as this tall young man dressed up in a warm-up suit tenderly picked up this, this little adult, kissed her, and sent her off to class. The president of the school explained that this student was a star basketball player who lost both his parents in his youth and had made a vow to look after his sister, who was obviously a little person. And though many scholarship offers came his way from much more competitive schools, the president explained that only southern Mississippi offered both a scholarship to him and to his sister as well. Yancey tells how Jackson was so moved by this that he went over to the basketball star, introduced himself, and said how much he appreciated this sacrificial act of looking after his sister. The athlete simply shrugged and said this. Look up on the screen. He said, well, those of us whom God makes 6'8 have to look out for those whom he makes 3'3 and walked away. I love that quote. Those of us whom God makes 6'8 need to look out for those whom God makes three foot three. On a spiritual level, I don't think it would be arrogant or prideful to say that there are some folks who have walked with God long enough, who have loved Him long enough, uh, that are about six foot eight on a spiritual level. Do you have people like that in your life? I do. I have people in my life that I just are spiritual giants to me. They just love the Lord, and, and I look up to them. They're six foot eight. And the church has lots of people like that, especially a church like Scottsdale Bible that has almost a 50-year-old history and lots of veteran believers. But the reality is, is that the church, if, if she's doing her job, also is to see an influx of lots of those who are seeking and those who are brand new believers that might be said to be about three foot three. 
And the only thing that makes the church a powerful place that she needs to be is if those who are 6'8 are looking out for those who are 3'3. So apply this to your relational base. You might have people in your life right now that are standing about three foot three, and they might be letting you down. They might be messing up in their life. They might be rebelling in their life. They might be making unwise decisions because there's challenge. They're struggling in their faith. Part of commitment is this mindset that those of us whom God makes six eight need to look out for those that He has made three three. And when we see that happen, when we do that, it's a beautiful thing. So you're committed to helping them to know God and love others. You're committed to helping them become all they can be in Christ or in their lives. And then third and finally, and this one pulls it all together, you're making a commitment to stay and stick with them in the long haul. I said to you earlier, if you don't hear anything else, hear that eternal security, breeding, relational security thing. But let me say it again, that if you take a second thing away from today's talk, please take this one home. That what love means more than anything else is a commitment to stay and stick with people in the long haul. And all I can tell you how rare this is. I love how the Apostle John, in his letter on love, would eventually say this to us. He says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that we lay down our life, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's commitment. That's rubber meeting the road right there. That God's eternal security-producing love is transferred to a human relationship and creates relational security that stays with them no matter what. That is biblical love. It's the kind of love that has staying power. It's the kind of love that refuses to let go no matter what. I'm, I'm journeying with you in the long haul. I'm in it for the distance. So let's be candid. We're talking about the fact that no amount of sin or human frailty or attacks from the evil one can stop it. Why? Because it's agape love. It doesn't have conditions. One of the reasons I love Lewis's definition of of agape love is unconditional is because we all know what that means. If it has conditions, if they can scare you off with their behavior, then it's not unconditional love. It's the kind of love that says, I will stay with you only if. And though your only ifs might be very rare, if they're still only ifs, it's not unconditional. Do we all get that? Give me a head nod. That's why this love is so rare. It's the kind of love that can't be scared off. And if you're buying into this at all today, the commitment you're making is I'm not going to let go. I'm with you no matter what you do. That's love. There's a great story of this on a physical level that appeared in the national news a few years ago. Uh, about five years ago, Angela and Debbie Nichols were mountain biking on a wilderness trail just uh, west of here in Mission Vejo, California, when all of a sudden a 110-pound mountain lion sprang from the brush and pounced on Ann's back, knocked her off the bike, grabbed her by the face, and began dragging her into the brush. Now, when I read that, I was in Cleveland, I thought, I am never moving to the Southwest. Don't ever say that. Because I thought, that place is just so savage. I mean, like, that doesn't happen in Cleveland. I'm like a mountain lion jumping on your back, grabbing your face, and dragging you into the brush. God, I'm never going to Scottsdale, and now here I am. Now, the good news is that doesn't happen very often, right? Like, that's just really unusual that something like that would happen. But it's a fact it happened. Uh, Nichols, her friend, immediately jumped off her bike, 
scream to those around them because it was a public trail for some help. But because this mountain lion was dragging her friend into the brush, she dove for Anne's legs. And once she had them, as you can imagine, the cat got even more ferocious and refused to let go, but Anne was pulling even harder. The bystanders by this time were throwing rocks and trying to do anything to get the cat to let go. And they testified that later on that, that as uh, Debbie was holding Anne's legs, she was repeating something to herself over and over again. She simply kept saying this. She said, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. Later on in the hospital, Nichols described the tenacity of the cat. She said this. She said, this guy, this cat would not let go. He just had a hold of her face. I I just told her, I'm never letting go. Eventually, the mountain lion did let go, due mostly to Debbie's refusal to not let go. And after being rushed to the hospital and undergoing multiple reconstructive surgeries to her face, to this day, Angela is okay. And, and, And she's living a normal life. It's an amazing story. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, says something really similar. Look up here on the screen. It says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In other words, on a physical level, it might be rare that a mountain lion would attack somebody in broad daylight on a public trail. On a spiritual level, the Bible says that it happens all the time and that there are going to be Christ followers who are walking around unaware and from out of nowhere, the evil one, spiritual dark forces are going to attack them, grab them by the face, and start to drag them off. The Bible also makes clear that we're to carry each other's burdens, bear each other's burdens, and to have that kind of commitment to one another that when that happens, we grab them by the proverbial ankles, we hang on for dear life, and we say over and over again to them, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. I probably have four or five people in my life like that. One of them is my wife, Kim. She has proved that to me over the years. Another one lives in Detroit. Another one lives in Cleveland. Who knows, I might even be developing that kind of friendship here in Scottsdale. But I consider myself really blessed that I got four or five people in my life that I know for a fact that even if I ever went off the deep end, and thankfully I haven't, but even if I did, even if the evil one grabbed me by the face and started dragging me into the brush... Say, for the sake of argument, my entire pastoral career was ruined. Whatever it might be, use your imagination. I know that there would be about four or five people that would grab my ankles. And they would say, we're never letting go. We are that committed to you. And I consider myself so incredibly blessed. And then I think to myself, now imagine what would happen if we had 5,000 people at Scottsdale Bible Church that had that kind of commitment to each other and to those in their sphere of influence. Imagine, this city would never be the same. This city would just be rocked. We wouldn't have to talk about evangelism. It would happen. We wouldn't have to talk about trying to bring young families back to this church. They'd come. We wouldn't have to talk about trying to get people to serve. They would. We wouldn't have to talk about raising up young leaders. They'd be raised up. You see, this happened in the first three centuries of the Christian church. They didn't have budgets. They didn't have programs. They didn't have buildings. They were persecuted. My gosh, they had to communicate underground just to show they were Christians. And yet they had love. They had the kind of love that God had poured out in their hearts. And that love was transferred to each other. And Jerusalem, North Africa, all the way over to Europe was never the same. That's what the Holy Spirit empowered. And so I hope today we don't take a lot of confidence in our PowerPoint, our building, our pews, our programs, our wonderful budget, 
though I hope we meet budget. I hope we don't take confidence in any of those things. I hope what we take confidence in is the fact that God inhabits us by His Holy Spirit and He's called us to a life of love. And He says that if you love like I love, just stand back and look out. Father, I thank You that in my life You have given me a few key relationships in which there are people that would grab my ankles and hold on for dear life should the evil one ever try to drag me off. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, because I hear stories every week, there are plenty of folks in this body right now who have people around them in which the evil one's doing just that. Where we know that there are teenagers and college students who are really struggling deeply in their faith and their values and their lifestyle. We know there are marriages that have gone down a, a rocky road that nobody ever thought would happen. God, we know that there is discouragement and depression based upon this economy that is all but eating up people from the inside out. But Lord, we know that there is levels of sin going on in people's lives that they dare hope nobody ever finds out about. God, so many things going on. And yet, Lord, one of the things you make so clear in your scripture is that love, agape love, covers over a multitude of sins. That if anything has the power to change the trajectory of a human life, to change the composition of a human heart, it's love. And Father, we're not talking some mamby-pamby, watered-down world's view of love that prioritizes good thoughts and heightened feelings, but a biblical form of love that goes very deep and that considers commitment to be the core. And so, Father, as we ponder these things afresh today, as we think about those in our life that need this kind of love, as we think about our own lives that desires this love, may we not stop until we start to see the fruit of this. May our mantra be, as David said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after you. God, may that be our journey. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this Christmas season in which we can focus in a unique way on Christ and our relationships. May you bless us, we pray indeed. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see you Christmas Eve.